0: So as you know, this autumn, Joe and Katie and I are preaching this sermon series called Stained Glass in celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And our conceit, of course, is that global Christianity is a mosaic, like a stained glass window. And if any of those little slivers of glass were missing, it would be an incomplete picture or a gap-toothed smile. So today I want to look at uh, what the Methodist tradition has contributed to uh, the Catholic Church, the global church tradition and I asked Joe and Katie have a lot of Methodist colleagues so they checked for me they asked their Methodist colleagues what are signature texts of the Methodist tradition what makes you think what Bible verses uh, do you think of when you think of Methodist and many of them came up with this story post Easter story from Luke chapter 24 quintessentially Methodist story Now on that same day, two disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with with each other about all the things that had just happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and walked with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And as these disciples walked along the road to Emmaus, Jesus interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, And as the three came near the village to which they were going, Jesus walked ahead as if he were continuing on. But the disciples urged Jesus strongly, saying, Stay with us because it's almost evening and the day is almost over. And so Jesus went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table, he took some bread and blessed it and broke it and gave thanks for it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. But Jesus vanished from their sight. And then one disciple turned to the other and said, Did not our hearts burn within us when he unfolded the scriptures for us? If you're ever singing a hymn and you get about halfway through and you stop yourself and you say to yourself, Wow, this is way better poetry than we're used to in our hymns. It's probably a hymn by either Isaac Watts, Or Charles Wesley, the two fathers of English hymnody. Till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Charles Wesley wrote 6,000 hymns, 11 of them are in our hymnal. And he and his brother John began the Methodist tradition. Pray with me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today I want to convince you that God's a Methodist. I made this sermon the next to the last episode in this sermon series. This is the ninth, the next to the last. I put it late deliberately in this series because I knew the least about this tradition of all the ones that we've looked at and I had to give myself time to do some research. And as I looked into this topic of the Methodist tradition, I was stunned by the huge impact Methodist spirituality has had on the American character. There is no way to exaggerate the impact of Methodism on what it means to be an American. There is a Methodist church in every tiny town in America. There are 40,000 Methodist congregations, more Methodist churches in America than post offices, 31,000, three times as many as McDonald's. 14,000. Membership is over 10 million, the third largest denomination in the United States after the Catholics and the Baptists. There are four times as many Methodists as Presbyterians, four times as many Methodists as Episcopalians, four times as many Methodists as Congregationalists, twice as many Methodists as Lutherans. Now why has the Methodist Church specifically flourished in American soil? I want to suggest there are at least three reasons, probably more, but time for three and 15 minutes. I want to talk about the heart strangely warmed, the Methodist quadrilateral, and boots-on-the-ground theology. First, the heart strangely warmed. You know, of course, that John Calvin is considered to be the intellectual giant of uh, the Reformed tradition of the Protestant Reformation. And his descendants, the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists, are famous for their intellectual approach to christianity now john wesley 200 years after Calvin, is a much simpler person more what you see is what you get more transparent more boots on the ground wesley would rather talk about the heart strangely warmed than like Calvin, the mind strangely cool right that was his emphasis that's the way he described what happened to him when he was converted from anglicanism to a warmer version of christianity In 1738, at the age of 35, my heart was strangely warmed, he said. Now, John Wesley was born in 1703, about almost 200 years after Martin Luther. So we have to remember that Wesley is to his mother church, the Church of England, what Martin Luther is to his mother church, the church in Rome. In the 16th century, Luther thought the mother church in Rome needed a rebirth and a reformation. You know, institutions are like people, right? When we age, we get arthritic and sclerotic. We get hard of hearing, our arteries harden. And that was what's happening to the church in the 16th century. My friend Michael is a Roman Catholic priest. He is the chaplain, the Roman Catholic chaplain at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. And Michael obviously is unmarried, but he likes to say all the time, I'm married to the Roman Catholic church. She's 2,000 years old and she looks it. That's what Martin Luther said in 1517. I'm married to this Augustinian monk. I'm married to the Roman Catholic Church. She's 1,500 years old, and she looks it. Time for a little Botox. Time for a makeover. And so by the time Wesley comes along, 200 years later, in the early 18th century, his mother church, the church in England, needs a little Botox to change the metaphor to a Wesleyan image. Who always, Wesley always used the image of heat and light and fire. I hope I can make this work. See So that's the logo for the United Methodist Church, this, this beautiful red flame that's typical of the Methodists. Wesley thought that the Church of England, 200 years old already in his day, was lukewarm, a dying ember, a campfire, gradually diminishing under a killing drizzle or a wet fog after 200 years of English prosperity. Thus, this beautiful logo of the United Methodist Church. If you can't see the screen, it's on page 11 of your bulletin. And so the story of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus is a quintessentially Methodist text. These two disciples walking home from Jerusalem after losing their friend, utterly disconsolate. Suddenly, there's not two but three. It's Jesus, but they can't recognize him, understandably, because they're not looking for him. They think He's dead. They come to their home, they convince Jesus to join them for dinner, and as Jesus breaks the bread and pours the cup, their eyes are opened and they recognize him. Jesus instantly vanishes, but one disciple says to the other, Did not our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures for us? That's where Wesley got that image of the heart strangely warmed. Our hearts are burning within us. This fire, this flame, this warm Christianity. Joe reminded me why the Methodists outnumber the Presbyterians in the United States. It's because as America moved west, the Methodists got there first. Because when you're a Methodist, all you need is a horse and a Bible and you can go anywhere. The Presbyterians didn't get there until the railroad arrived because they had to ship their books. (laughs) But, But here's the thing. This this emphasis on the heart strangely warmed never made the Methodists go soft in the head, as corners of evangelical and fundamentalist Christianity have, right? So here's a little irony of American history. John Calvin is a giant of the Protestant Reformation, and his descendants, the Presbyterians and Congregationalists, are famous for their intellectual approach to the faith. But if anything, the Methodists have had even, even greater success than the Presbyterians, in American higher education. So, you know, Princeton University, an originally Presbyterian place, is pretty cool, but after that it kind of falls off. Presbyterians have wonderful colleges, but they're smaller and regional. But now think of all the great national Methodist universities, or at least schools that were founded by Methodists. American University, Boston University, Duke University, Drew University, Southern Methodist University, Wesleyan University, and Emory University, which educated Joe. In 1851, nine prominent Chicago Methodists got together and purchased 379 379 acres on Lake Michigan and planted this modest little school about two miles south of here. It was non-sectarian and secular from the beginning, but they placed this school under the protection of the Methodist Episcopal Church. Its roots are Methodists. The leader of that little group, as you know, was John Evans, a prominent Chicago Methodist physician. Mr. Evans knew that his baby university was going to need the support and shelter of a nearby village, so he platted out this little town right next to his baby university, and they eventually called it John Evans Town. We call it Evanston. Mr. Evans left Evans Town to move to Colorado, where he became governor and planted another university the University of Denver, another Methodist with, uh, another college with Methodist roots. So the heart strangely warmed, by, balanced by this intellectual tradition. That's the first thing. The second is the Methodist quadrilateral. Do you know about the Methodist quadrilateral? Neither did I until very recently. But let me explain to you. Let me see if I can make this work. I better get out of here. So, for 2,000 years in the Christian church, and for another 2,000 years before that, one of the thorniest issues for people of faith to wrestle with is how we know what we know about God, right? That is to say, what authenticates our truths? For 1,500 years, the church in Rome said that we rest on a two-legged stool. I was so pleased to find a two-legged stool that worked. So Rome says we know what we know about God because of scripture and tradition, right? The Bible first and tradition. What the church has always thought and taught about God. So that, for instance, purgatory is not in the Bible, right? There are no celibate priests in the Bible. The bodily assumption of Mary is not in the Bible. But those are things that are true because we've always thought they were true. That's the Roman Catholic Church. And then Luther and Calvin came along and took one of the legs of the stool away. And they started, Luther and Calvin were always talking about sola scriptura, scripture alone, right? Tradition is human and therefore fallible. So they took that leg away. The only thing we know about God is what the scriptures tell us about God. But you can see how tippy a one-legged stool is, right? Think of the, how solid your core needs to be to balance yourself on a one-legged stool. I want to tell you just one story about how sola scriptura can lead us astray. I know about this small evangelical Christian college in Michigan, which is a very fine place, but they once fired one of their religion professors because he would not confirm that Adam and Eve were actually historical people who really lived in history. Now think about that for a minute. I think this is a spectacular misunderstanding about how scripture communicates its truths first man and the first woman where on the the evolutionary journey do you place these people as the hominid species and its predecessors developed from one stage to the next who was the first man and the first woman was it lucy the australopithecus saffarensis creature they found in africa 40 years ago or was it the first homo erectus creature they found in Ethiopia just a few years ago several hundred thousand years after Lucy or was it homo sapiens who looked a lot like us but didn't arrive until 2.5 million years after Lucy and wherever you put the first man and the first woman did they have the vocabulary and the grammar and the syntax to talk to each other and to God and to the snake with the witty repartee that genesis reports right and so this is this is why a one-legged stool is tippy and we need other ways of knowing about god henry VIII knew this the anglican tradition knew this so the anglicans gave us a three-legged stool not just scripture not just what the church has always taught about god but reason It took God 13 billion years to evolve this snappy little three-pound instrument called the human brain. We might as well use it to think about God. But then Wesley comes along 200 years later and gives us a fourth uh, leg to our stool. And this is called the Methodist quadrilateral. Not just scripture, not just tradition, not just reason, but also experience. That is to say... We know God when we see God because we've already met God on our own Emmaus Road. Perhaps we were disconsolate after great loss or distracted by trivialities, And we don't notice that there's this third person walking along with us. And we don't recognize that it was Jesus. But then we break bread with him and our hearts burn within us as he unfolds the scripture for us. So, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. We will know God when we meet God because we've already seen God on our own Emmaus Road. And I love the Methodist quadrilateral because it just seems to me that this is how human beings decide what's true and what's not. We use our heads, we use our hearts, we use our authentic authorities, the Bible and tradition. That's how we decide if something is real or not. So the heart strangely warmed on the Methodist quadrilateral. One more thing and then I'll quit. I love Wesley's boots-on-the-ground theology. I think one of the reasons the Methodist church is so attractive to Americans is because that though Wesley was an Englishman and an Anglican, there's something quintessentially American about Wes- Wesley. He's like sort of what you see is what you get kind of a guy. He's a boots-on-the-ground kind of a guy he'll leave that ivory tower theology to John Calvin. And like Wesley himself, Americans want to say, keep your abstractions to yourself. You don't know as much about God as you think you know about God. So put your theology down on the curb where any little uneducated street urchin can understand it. Put the hay down on the ground where the goats can get it. Americans want to Define theology. Remember that old definition of theology? Theology is the search at midnight in a dark room for a black cat that isn't there. Americans kind of believe that. Don't tell me your speculations and your abstractions. Just tell me what works. That was John Wesley. All he was interested in was building effective disciples and shaping holy lives. Sanctification was one of his favorite words. Holy making. That's what he was interested in. William Willimon is one of the greatest Methodist preachers of the 20th and the 21st century. He was for a long time dean of the chapel at Duke University. And Dr. Willimon says that one time he was complaining to a Methodist colleague of his about the sorry state of the church. He was rueing the fact that the church so little resembles the kingdom of God on earth that it was meant to embody And after Dr. Williman whined on for a number of minutes, his colleague got tired of his whining and said, Will, you want to see the kingdom of God? Follow me. And this Methodist preacher took Dr. Williman into the dark, dank basement of his church where two women were washing, drying, and folding the clothes of the homeless people who lived in refrigerator boxes around that church. Will, here's the kingdom, here's the church. It was, says Dr. Williman, a very Methodist moment. Boots on the ground. Forget the abstractions. So, what is the greatest baseball movie of them all? Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, Fever Pitch bang the drum slowly, the natural. It's hard to choose. Lots of great baseball movies. But you can make an argument for 42, the 2013 biopic about Jackie Robinson. If you have to pay $3.99 for it on Amazon, it's worth the price of admission just to watch Harrison Ford ham it up as Branch Rickey. When Branch Rickey, general manager of the Dodgers, when Branch Rickey... University of Michigan, class of 1911, by the way, when Branch Rickey decided in 1945 that a young four-letter athlete from UCLA would be the perfect baseball player to break the color barrier in Major League Baseball, Mr. Rickey's front office scouts at the Dodgers were horrified, skeptical and horrified, because just the year before, in 1944, when Jackie Robinson was a second lieutenant, in the United States Army. He'd been arrested and almost court-martialed for refusing to step to the back of a military bus. Now, this was not illegal in 1944. It was not even a discourtesy. The US Army forbid segregation on military transports, but the bus driver thought it was wrong, so he called the MPs. They arrested Jackie. And when Jackie's superior officer refused to proceed with the court-martial, the charges against Jackie were reduced to public drunkenness, which was a lie, because Jackie and his wife, Rachel, were Methodists. Methodists don't drink, or they didn't in 1944. (laughs) And so Branch Rickey's Front office colleagues at the Dodgers were skeptical. They didn't think Jackie was the right person to break the color barrier because he was too obstreperous, too stubborn, maybe just too principled. But Branch Rickey had already made up his mind, and he said, Jackie's perfect. He's a Methodist. I am a Methodist. God's a Methodist. It was meant to be. Now, Mr. Ricky may have been exaggerating just a little bit, but God had something to do with the flourishing of Methodism in American soil. John Wesley once said, If I die with more than 10 pounds in my pocket, I am a thief. Sounds a little bit like Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, doesn't he? During his lifetime, John Wesley gave away 30,000 pounds, almost every penny he earned, about a million dollars in today's valuations. If I die with more than 10 pounds in my pocket, I am a thief. And his descendants in England and the United States have been doing the same thing ever since. And they are worthy of our respect. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.